Good morning, and uh, we have the privilege once again to open up our Bibles and read them, read from them. I ask if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, and stand with me when you find that to read God's Word. I told first hour this, I was, I was thinking about this last night, I was just laying there thinking, you know, I ask people to open up their Bibles and then stand, and I realized that that's off-putting for some, they're like, hey, you're making me stand, you know, and I personally don't like to be asked to stand up when I'm already sitting down. It's, it's comfy to sit down. But, I, you know, and, and it is based on Scripture when, when they open up the Word and, and read in, 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 in Nehemiah, you see it. But every time someone read the Bible and Scripture, they weren't standing necessarily. And so you could make the case for why would we even do this? But I think that there's something about um, getting out of our comfort zone and actually in a sense, calling ourselves to attention before God because what we're about to read right now isn't my word, it's not your word, it is God's word, which is perfect, which is true, which is without error, and it's what God uses through his Holy Spirit to do a work of grace in and through our lives. And so I think it's, it's, it doesn't mean we have to do this every time, but I think it's, a, it's an important thing to, to think about before we read, this is God's word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 11 verses 25 through 27. Once again, it is a another non-traditional passage to be preaching on at Christmas time. Uh, I could make the argument that every passage in scripture is a Christmas passage and also an Easter passage and things like that, but this is not where you'd usually go at Christmas time, but I think it has it has a, an application for us in our lives. Uh, and, and, it, and it has applications to the Christmas story as well as to our daily life. Well, let's read. This is God's word. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And Lord God, we thank You that we can open up Your Word today. Thank You, Lord, that You have spoken. Thank You, Lord, that You have spoken truth we need. And thank You, Lord, that You will do what You want in our lives as a result of us being exposed to your word today. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I quoted a good friend of mine several weeks ago who said it is truly hard to be a Christian and truly worship Jesus at Christmas time in America. And I believe that. And by the way, in case you're not clued in to how off-base our culture is when it comes to Christmas, and how countercultural it really is to, to worship Jesus, to celebrate Jesus at Christmas time, check this out. I want to quickly give you three things that, uh, that kind of illustrate that. Number one, I opened up my, my newspaper on Monday morning, last Monday morning, and there was an article about an inmate in Orange County Jail who demanded three kosher meals a day. But it was not because he was Jewish, 
And so his attorney said, you're not going to be able to get this unless you declare a religion. So he said, well, my religion is healthism. Now his attorney admitted that it was a farce. He said he just took the word health and ism and put them together. So it didn't fly with the judge either. But then the judge hears the case and he says, you've got to give me a religion. So the attorney says, well, his religion is Festivus. Festivus. Now the sad part is it flew with the judge. It flew with the judge. If you don't know, Festivus, it's Festivus for the rest of us. Festivus is a fake holiday made up in 1996 for the TV show Seinfeld. And, and, and by the way, it consisted of uh, putting an aluminum pole in your, in your house instead of a Christmas tree. There, was, there were several things about it. There was the, the airing of grievances, where you could air all the things that you had against other people at this time. There were feats of strength, where you would show how strong you are. And there were festivus miracles, which basically were everyday events easily explained. But that flew, and it was recognized as a religion, and so we paid for this man's three kosher meals a day for a time. Second thing I'll bring up is the wholesale misrepresentation of the Christmas message, the meaning of Christmas in our culture. Uh, It's not celebrating the incarnation, God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ for the purpose of dying for the sins of the world. But what we get is a humanistic grab bag of sentimentality. Uh, a, a kind of a syrupy, mushy, no specifics, just a vague goodwill and friendliness towards all. People try hard in that context to drum it up, but without a savior, it is complete emptiness. The last thing I'll mention, and just in terms of how off-base our culture is when it comes to Christmas, are the marketing tools. Uh, Telling you that you will find joy in an iPad, or a TV, or the toy you want, or the the video game that, that everybody wants. There is the BMW Joy event. You can find your joy in buying and then driving a very expensive automobile. Just yesterday, I, uh, turned over the back of a candy cane box, box of candy canes, and it told me that if I just hang these up in my house, it will bring joy to everyone who's around. Now these, these ideas, and these are not the only ones, but these do not represent the good news of a great joy that will be for all the people that the angels announced to the shepherds. Now we are in week Three of a four-week look at a two-part question. You can do the math on that. Uh, basically, the, it's this. Who is Jesus and what does he want for Christmas? And we're based in Matthew chapter 11, which reveals who Jesus is and what he wants. Comfort, by the way, it brings comfort for those who believe and challenge for those who refuse to. But so far, we'll do a little review here. So far, we saw Jesus, the promised Messiah in verses 7 through 19 of Matthew 11. That Jesus wants people to listen to him so that they would understand who he is and become his true disciples. That he is the one who is going to save his people from their sins, and so we need to listen to him and what he has to say. Last week we saw that Jesus is the coming judge. A really uh, 
a real fun and, and comfy thing to, to think about at Christmas time. And uh, that he's the coming judge. And we saw that in verses 20 to 24. That Jesus wants people to turn to him so that they would survive the day of judgment. The day when Jesus will judge unbelievers for their unbelief and lack of repentance. And now in Matthew eleven twenty five 25 through 27, we're going to see Jesus, the revealing Savior. Jesus, the revealing Savior. The one who reveals God to the world. So let's take a look, and we'll start at verse 25 and see what it says. First of all, it, it tells us that at that time, Jesus makes a declaration. Jesus makes a statement. But he basically prays, he he. He prays a, a prayer of praise to the Father because he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The context in Matthew is Jesus has just pronounced judgment on those who don't repent of their sins. Uh, Cross-reference those the context in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus says pretty much the same thing. It was after the 70 returned from being sent out by Jesus and coming back with joy that God had done such amazing things through them. But here, there's a prayer. It is praise to the Father. The intimacy of Jesus' relationship with the Father, with God, is revealed as he calls him Father. It, It brings us back to Matthew 6 and verse 9, when Jesus gave the prayer for his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. He calls him Lord of heaven and earth. It is a a title of sovereignty that brings comfort, that brings security to those who believe. Um, Father, by the way, the use of father in this verse, and you'll see it in every verse we look at today, multiple times, the, the term father, it prepares us for speaking of the son in verse 27. The term Lord, the phrase Lord of heaven and earth, prepares us for a discussion right now in in verses 25 and 26 of God's sovereignty, God's supremacy. Now, God is merciful. God is merciful. He reveals himself. He reveals saving truths to mankind. And if God did not reveal his saving truths to mankind, there would be no hope for mankind, any, to be saved. C.H. Spurgeon, when he spoke of this passage, said that at this point in Jesus' teaching, he, he probably was filled with some sorrow as he spoke of God's judgment on people who would not turn from their sins. But now he, he turns and speaks of God's amazing grace, a joyful thing, and his words were really a prayer of thanksgiving. And I, I want you to think with me for just a moment about what we're, what we're seeing here, that Jesus, the king worshipped in the midst of difficulty he he had been falsely accused he had had people many reject him as john one says he came unto his own his own did not receive him and he offered praise in the midst of what you would call a discouraging situation he raised he rested in in the face of obstacles so let me just ask you are you discouraged today it's a common human occurrence, but what are you discouraged about today? And, and do you feel like the people that you're, that you're trying to reach are maybe hopeless? Or that they're always criticizing? Or that they're always unrepentant? If so, what you ought to do is stop 
and praise God. What we want to do is we want to keep pushing, keep trying, push through it. But what Jesus does is he, he makes the difficulty an occasion for thanksgiving and praise, and that's what we ought to do. Jesus rested in the midst of the absolute supremacy and, and, and the will of his Father, and so must we. But Jesus is saying that God hides certain things from some people and reveals certain things to others. So we want to know what are those things and and who is it revealed to? He says that God hides from the wise and intelligent, the wise and understanding. And and that doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't be wise and intelligent or wise and understanding. And Of course you should with God's wisdom. This, though, is speaking of people who think they are wise and intelligent, yet they stubbornly refuse to repent and believe the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. They refuse to learn from Jesus the only true way to God. Now, the little children, or the babes, as as it says, are those of any age who will innocently receive Jesus' revelation from the Father, of the Father. See, people will reject Jesus. But what he's giving here is that there is another side of the story. There is, a, there is a brighter side of the picture that brings joy and not gloom. That souls that hunger and thirst for salvation will find it in Christ. And only in Christ. That God has hidden the knowledge of these things. What are these things? That these things are salvation truths. They are they are the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. They're, they're hidden from the prideful and the arrogant who fail to see spiritual reality. They're blinded. The, the Bible says that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they would not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. They're blind. Now the babes come to Jesus with humility and the faith of a child. Go with me to Matthew chapter 18, just a few chapters forward. Chapter 18 and verse 1 tells us that at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Good question. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, unless you repent, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 19 and verse 13. Children were brought to Jesus that he may lay his hands on them and pray for them and bless them. Well, the disciples rebuked the people who brought the children. Jesus doesn't want any of that. But Jesus says, oh, yes, I do. He says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. See, what we see in this verse, really the bottom line on verse 25, is that humility is needed for receiving God's revelation. You must be humble before God. That wisdom apart from God is foolishness. That God has hidden these things from the wise, the, those who think they are, and We are to be wise and intelligent, but not in a worldly sense of human wisdom. Not in a worldly sense of human experience and ideas that that only stay with mankind. 
God chooses, the, the Bible tells us, the foolish and weak things to confound the wise, to frustrate the arrogant and the boastful. So those who have humility to admit that they're spiritually helpless before God will receive revelation from God as saving truths. That's the idea. 1 Peter 5, 5 tells us that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the grace that the humble receive is revelation of God's saving truths. Verse 26, very short verse, but Jesus repeats the, the phrase, uh, Father, the, the term Father. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was well-pleasing in the Father's sight to do what he did. Well, what did he do? He hid the saving truths from the arrogant and revealed them to the humble. The idea here is that it is God's prerogative to do as he pleases with those he has made. He is the creator, and his creation is in his hands. That he owes nothing to anyone and chooses according to his good pleasure alone. Unless we say, well, that's, that's not fair. We must remember that, that God's character is perfectly consistent. Ours isn't, but God's is. That his love and grace and mercy and kindness and justice fit perfectly together. That God's revealing and God's hiding are based on what is good to him from his perspective. Now, God's perspective is different than our perspective. See, my perspective is pretty warped at times. I'll see something that you might say is, is black, and I'll say, no, it's, it's white. I'll see something that you, that you will say, well, that's perfectly fair, and I'll say, that's, that's unjust. But God's perspective is perfectly holy, perfectly true, perfectly right, perfectly sinless, now, the human perspective is unholy and sinful. So let's not put God's perspective in, in the realm of ours. See, here's the idea here. God does not need to explain himself or justify himself to anyone. He doesn't need to explain to mankind concerning his redeeming plan and, 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 and saving work. But he reveals that plan and that work to the humble to the ones who are willing to receive it. Now this concealing and revealing is not an act of injustice as it would be if we did it, but it is actually in context an act of judgment. We had just seen in verses 20 to 24 that Jesus was pronouncing judgment on those who would not turn from their sins. That was going to be the just due of their error. And the truth is that all people are sinful and guilty before God. And he is not obligated to reveal himself to anyone. Now verse 27 is a statement that is, is shocking in its magnitude. And, and the people that originally heard this, that, that heard Jesus say this, couldn't believe their ears and actually most didn't believe it. They knew he had said it, but they wouldn't accept it. What Jesus says is this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Now, we have a closed loop here, if you've noticed, if we end the, the verse there. But it goes on and says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal 
the Father. Now, first, let's talk about the all things. What are the all things that have been given to him? Well, it matches with the all authority that's been given to him. Matthew 28, 18. And all power, Colossians 1, 17. That he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's the power with which he has to subject all things to himself. He has all control. Now, verses 25 and 26 showed us that humility is necessary to receive God's revelation. But 27, verse 27 shows us that no one can come to God unless they come to him through Jesus Christ. That one cannot come to God without accepting Christ. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23 says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. That's pretty clear. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, you might read this verse and say, you know, this verse doesn't really fit my theology. And I would say with as much love as I can, you need to change your theology to fit this verse. God's word, it stands, and it's, it, it's, 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 it's a tough statement. It's a tough statement. But it stands. Now, the key to this, this, this verse is the word no. It's, it's used a lot in this verse. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. The Greek word there is epigonosko. It's an important word. It, it means more than what we would say no, like, oh yeah, I know him, or I know her. And we know a few things about them. We could give, them, give you part of their bio, maybe, and, and give you some information about them. But this word means m- so much more. It involves the most intimate and fullest acquaintance. It is not merely knowing facts about someone. It is first-hand experiential knowledge of the, the closest kind. It is like marriage is meant to be. And the idea here is that the father, by doing what was well-pleasing in his sight, had withheld or revealed truth about Jesus. And Jesus is saying that he has that same authority to reveal the Father to whomever he wills. They have the same authority. Now, such a claim of power and authority, like I said, was shocking to Jesus' hearers. In fact, it would lead them to accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he was making himself out to be God. You, you use this term father and son together like this, and what you're saying is we are one and the same. We are together. We are unified. Jesus was basically screaming out, I am God, and you need to listen. But many would not believe. The father and the son have a mutual, intimate relationship, and they knew what he was saying, They just didn't want to believe it. All things being handed over to Jesus include the power and prerogative to reveal the Father to whomever he wills. That's what it says. Now, it gives greater meaning to Jesus' statement in John chapter 14 and verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is claiming equality with the Father. And these verses put huge emphasis on Jesus' person and authority, who he is and what he can do in terms of authority. 
I want you to take a little, a little journey with me in the Gospel of John, and we're going to start in John chapter 3. Just look at five or six verses that, that also show this. John chapter 3 and verse 35 is where we'll start. One of the, my favorite sounds in all the world is the, the sound of pages in the Bible turning. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now go to John chapter 8 and verse 19. John chapter 8 and verse 19. Jesus says in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. There's that word. It's a, it's a strong word, No. Now let's go to chapter 10 and verse 15. Jesus has just said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. This experiential knowledge, this deep communion. In verse 15 he says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now John chapter 14 and verse 9. John chapter 14 and verse 9 says this, and this is after Philip is, is expressing a question, Lord, show us the Father, uh, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then chapter 16 and verse 15, last verse. He's speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit that he would send after he dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and goes back to to the right hand of the Father. He says this. He says in verse 12, I have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now. When the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The idea here is that Jesus is God, and he reveals the secrets of the kingdom. The question we must ask, and you might be wondering, is how are these verses Christmas verses? How, how does Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 to 27, a Christmas passage? Well, this, this passage is all about how Jesus wants us to humbly admit our need for him so that we would come to know him. That Jesus wants us to know the greatness of the Father is revealed exclusively in the Son and that we would trust in Christ for salvation and not the wisdom of man. This is why Jesus came to earth. This is why the incarnation. God does, if God does not reveal himself to mankind, mankind is lost forever but he revealed himself that first christmas galatians 4 4 tells us at the perfect time in the fullness of the time god sent forth his son basically threw him down to earth 
to us. The eternal Son became man in the person of Jesus Christ. I just want to point out two important truths, and we've really touched on them, but I want to point them out in greater detail right now that reveal what these verses teach and how we see it played out in the Christmas story, but also in daily life. And the first thing is this, that God reveals himself to the humble, and he hides himself from the arrogant. That's what we saw in these three verses. And there is a promise here for all who believe that he gives to us. That he gives. We, you know, we want to give gifts at Christmas time because we want to express, hopefully it comes from the deepest part of our souls and we say, I am so thankful for what Jesus has given me that I want to give to others as well. We, we hope that that would be our, our, our motivation. But, but God gives to us. God sent forth his son. There has been born to you today in the city of David a savior for you, Christ the Lord. But he gives to us, and and those who will admit their need for Jesus get it. They they will understand it. But those who do not admit their need for Jesus won't get it. And and you see this in the Christmas story. You see the humble ones in the Christmas story. And and, and the arrogant are a bit more subdued in the story, though there is one that breaks out hugely. But to the humble ones, first and foremost, the prophets... The people before the time of Christ, even, that, were, that the prophets were speaking to. Many people uh, wouldn't accept those words, but, but many did, and they entered into the pre-Christmas anticipation of a coming deliverer, that there would be one who would save his people from their sins. This is what they were waiting for. This is why, why they were waiting for Jesus to be born before they even knew his name. What Isaiah talked about when he said, The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In Hebrew, that means God with us. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He'll be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God revealed himself to Joseph and Mary. Mary gets this news, and, and, and she had been... Marked out by God for, for this in her life. It, he had chosen her. He chose who would be the mother of Jesus Christ. Joseph, he, he gets news from an angel. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And, and God had marked Joseph out for this. He revealed himself to him through this angel. And, and he was afraid. And he said, don't be afraid. This is good. People are going to misunderstand, but this is good. You got the shepherds. The shepherds are out minding their own business, out caring for their flocks at night, and, and an angel comes in, and God had marked them out to hear this news. Simeon. Simeon had, had lived his life in, in anticipation of seeing the Messiah. It had been revealed to him from God that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. So when he held Jesus in his arms, he said to God, I can die now in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. Anna, a prophetess who were, was in the, in, the, in, in the temple day and night and, and, and she praised God when she, when she saw Jesus. Wise men, most of us have nativity scenes, by the way, and 
It's a bit more time delayed than most nativity scenes show. You know, you got them all right there and it looks all awesome, but they really should be like across the room or in another room. Put them in the garage and bring them out later. Uh, But the wise men, God had revealed himself to them and they went. But God also hid himself from the proud at Christmas time. The, the most glaring or blatant example is Herod. But here's, here's God with us. Here's God incarnate coming onto the scene, the Savior, the Lord. And he, he came up with a plan, and, and he had set that plan in motion, and, and, and he had arranged all the details, and he was carrying it out. And in that process, he was revealing himself to the humble. You see this in daily life. Step away from the the Christmas story and you see this where we live, that God reveals himself in and through his word. Jesus is the living word and as we expose ourselves to the word of God, it does its work in us who believe as 1 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us. That God assures believers of his presence. You might say, well, I don't know for sure if I'm a Christian. Well, if you're a Christian, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit will bear witness with, our, with your spirit that you are ch- a child of God. That will happen. Verse, verse 26, it, it says that, that this was well-pleasing to the Father to reveal and to hide these things. And um, we know that God gives general revelation to all that even including as Romans 1 tells us a, an inner awareness of of God and his presence but he has given specific revelation through the prophets up to John the Baptist he openly proclaimed the coming Messiah but he only reveals the gospel truth to those who will admit their need that's why some remain blind that's why some remain Uh, no spiritual pulse. Uh, That's why some remain hardened to the gospel. He hides it from those who sense no need for his truth, but he reveals gospel truth to those who will admit their need. The second thing I want to point out is that the humble receive Christ. The arrogant reject him. In verse 25, we've got this idea of the hidden and the revealed. And the whole idea here is that there is a responding to God that is going on. That some come to know him and others do not. And and you see it in the Christmas story. You see it. God revealed himself to Joseph and Mary. And what happened? Mary said, let it be done to me as you have said. Thy will be done, basically. Joseph had been told don't be afraid to take mary as your wife the baby in her is from the holy spirit you're going to call him jesus he's the one that's going to save his people from their sins and he will be called emmanuel god with us and so what did joseph do he went and took mary as his wife he responded to the revelation and and went for it with god he he put all his eggs in that basket shepherds what do shepherds do? They, do they say, hey, you know what? We're, we're out here watching over our flocks by night. We, we don't have time to go to Bethlehem. But what'd they say? 
Let's go straight there and see. Let's go. They received God's revelation and they went. Same is true for the the wise men. They followed that star that God had arranged. But you got the arrogant rejecting Jesus at Christmas. And again, the most the blatant example is Herod. Herod tried to destroy Jesus. And, and he went and he killed. And this is the dark side of Christmas. This is the, this is the underbelly of Christmas. This is, the, this is the stuff you don't want to talk about at Christmas. This is, this is, this is sad stuff. Uh, he went and he killed many little children in hopes that he would get Jesus in the process. He saw only a threat where he should have seen a blessing. Now you see this idea of the humble receiving Christ and the the arrogant rejecting him in daily life too. In all times and in all places and right where we live. And let me take you back to where we looked last week. Last week we looked at Matthew 11, 20 to 24 and it pictured man responding to a holy God. It pictured uh, those who who rejected Jesus being, being justly judged for that rejection. Now, in these verses, we really see a picture of the electing grace of God. And they're side by side. The responsibility of man, the sovereignty of God, the the accountability of man, the supremacy of God. We need to acknowledge them both, and they're both taught in Scripture, and they're usually seen side by side. But the believer, here's what a believer does. A believer agrees that they freely chose to follow Jesus. Of their own free will. They said, I want to follow Jesus. But a believer also agrees that they couldn't have done that unless God had chosen them and drawn them to himself. That they acknowledge the electing grace of God. They acknowledge their own, their own choice. And there's no inconsistency. They, they go perfectly together. The, the, the language of these three verses we're looking at today are hidden, revealed. Your good pleasure chooses they're, they're all pointing to God's supremacy, God's sovereignty. The language of last week's verses points to human responsibility, where people are judged for rejecting Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at verses 28 through 30. Those point to human responsibility. Jesus gives a gospel invitation to everyone. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And by the way, as we're going to see next week, that is not some syrupy, sentimental, hey, if you're tired, come over and hang out. Okay? It's come to Jesus. It's come to Jesus' time. Jesus offers the gift of salvation to all who will respond favorably. God is sovereign in salvation. Salvation is a sovereign act of God something that he accomplishes. Man is responsible to God, accountable to him for his response, and we are called to preach the gospel to everyone because we have no idea who is who. You just, you just, you give the gospel. You, you, t- you, you preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. You call people to repentance and faith so that they might believe and be saved. That's what you do. You share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and you, you, trust, you trust God with the results. The gospel, Romans 1 tells us, is the power of God for salvation. So here's what a person needs to know to come to faith in Christ. If this is you today and you go, what do I need to know? 
to come to faith in Christ, it's this, that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sins, and he died on a cross, and he was buried in the grave, and he came back to life, and if you place your faith in him, you'll be saved. If you believe, you'll be saved. He secured forgiveness and new life for all who will believe. Boil down this verse, in verse 25 especially, D.A. Carson says it well. He says, Jesus is contrasting between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught. Self-centered know-it-alls bloated by their own arrogance and they they reject Jesus. Or God-dependent learners hungry with humility and they receive, they're thirsty, they're hungry, they, they just receive what God gives. Theologian Helmut Felix said this. He said, a salty pagan, full of the juices of life, I love that, the juices of life, is a hundred times dearer to God and also far more attractive to man than a scribe who knows his Bible in whom none of this results in repentance, action, and above all, death to self. A terrible curse hangs over the know-it-all who does nothing. God reveals himself to the humble, hides himself from the arrogant, and the humble receive him, the arrogant reject him. That's it. And, and God reveals himself to those who will admit their need for him so that they would come to know him. And the truth that God reveals in the Christmas story and all through the year is simply amazing. And, 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 and the incarnation, I, I mean, when I think about the incarnation, it, it blows my mind. It really does. It, uh, my son and I were, Michael and I were talking the other night about that. that, that the incarnation is, is mind-blowing. It just it goes beyond everything we can even say. Without it, we don't have Easter. Jesus is the central focus of history, the central figure of history, the, the focal point of our faith, the true reason we can know God. But here's what I'm finding. I'm finding that the, even though I know Jesus and I've known him for a long time, praise God, I can get numbed to my daily moment-by-moment need for him and slip into almost a spiritual coma of sorts where I'm alive but not useful for the cause of Christ. And I will just say this to you. This is, above all, a week where God can use you for his kingdom purposes. Think about how many gatherings you're going to be in where there's unbelievers. You think about how many people would be open to hearing the story of Jesus and what it truly, what Christmas truly means. My inbox, I can't believe it, but my inbox uh, and mailbox have been flooded this season with merchants literally begging me to buy stuff from them. And they're pulling out all the stops. I'm telling you, you know. And here's what I've had to do. I literally have to force myself to focus on Jesus or else I will be swept away in the craziness of the moment, which is exactly what marketers are hoping I'll do. Swipe the card, think later, right? That's why I want to preach Christ and him crucified to myself, to my household, and to you right now in hopes that the transforming truth of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ will launch a counterattack on the world, the flesh, and the devil, on the world's hollow wisdom, and lead us away from slavery to whatever ism we might be slavery to, enslaved to and into the glorious freedom of the children of God in Christ. That's my prayer.
God wants us to, to, to truly recognize him in the middle of all the things that can truly distract us from him. God wants us to remember him in the many gatherings that we're going to find ourselves in. And, and, and God wants us to acknowledge him, to, to speak of him, to, to pray to him, to, to read his word, and, and to truly worship, to worship him from the bottom of our hearts. But what happens sometimes, and it happens in my life, is sometimes I have to have my grip pried by God from the things that I cling to that are based on worldly wisdom. I think it reminds me of Gandalf talking to Bilbo Baggins in the Fellowship of the Ring, and he's trying to get him to let go of this ring that he knows is going to ruin him if he keeps holding on to it. And, 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 and he's thinking he's getting robbed, and he says, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Well, what are some things that are based on worldly wisdom that you need to loosen your grip on? Is it a thing, a hope, a person? Don't wait till God has to pry it from your hands. The salvation that Jesus brings is truly life-altering. And it's not a one-time change. It's not. The gospel transforms our lives and continues to change us. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Grace in the place of grace. A continuous stream of grace being provided. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16 tells us. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Meaning that the faith God gives us as a gift leads to more faith as a gift from God. We trust God and not ourselves. So this Christmas, maybe, just maybe... God wants to reveal himself anew to you in a way that you haven't maybe recognized before. Maybe he wants to restore something in you that has gotten frozen or or clouded or, or even lost due to sin and its effects. His righteousness, his his peace, his his joy as, as you seek to worship Jesus. John Piper said this, Christ never takes away from his people one thing which he does not replace with something better. Every sin you forsake out of love to Christ is replaced with a deeper and purer joy. The aim of God at Christmas is to make the goodies of the world lose all their attraction in comparison to the surpassing glory of his name. The essence of Christmas Purity is not what you stand against, but what you stand in awe of, the glorious name of God. And that takes me immediately, my mind immediately to, to Philippians chapter 2, where it says that God has bestowed on Jesus the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But I'll just say the whole thing, the whole thing, is really awe-inspiring. God reveals himself, and then he inspires worship and adoration and praise in us. You think about all the songs we sing at Christmas. Think about all the hymns we sing at Christmas, all the, all the carols we sing at Christmas that are Christ-centered. Those came out of the depths of people, sprung out of the depths of people's souls, Uh, God inspired them to write something 
of praise to him. And uh, it's, it's, it's awe-inspiring. My favorite, uh, my favorite line of, of probably any Christmas song, uh, and I didn't know this until recently, but John Sullivan Dwight wrote these words, and it's to the song, O Holy Night. And it's these words, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. It means they were just wasting away till he appeared, till Jesus appeared, and the soul felt its worth. Soul felt its worth. I just learned that the music to that song, O Holy Night, was originally composed in 1847, a long time ago before any of us were born, by a guy named Adolf Adams. And, but he didn't compose it for those words. He composed it for a French poem entitled Midnight Christian. And, and the literal translation of that poem is a clear call to worship Jesus. I just want to read you part of it. It goes like this, and, and worship team, come on up. It goes like this. Midnight Christians, it is the solemn hour when the God-man descended to us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his Father. The entire world thrills with hope on this night that gives it a Savior. People kneel down. Wait for your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas. Here is the Redeemer. Christmas, Christmas. Here is the Redeemer. May the ardent light of our faith guide us all to the cradle of the infant as in ancient times a brilliant star guided the oriental kings there. The king of kings was born in a humble manger. O mighty ones of today, proud of your greatness, it is to your pride that God preaches. Bow your heads before the Redeemer. Bow your heads before the Redeemer. Lord God, we want to bow our heads before the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, through Christmas and all through the year, we thank you, Lord, that you inspire worship, you inspire adoration, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.